0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the African Data Scientist podcast, a show where we get to tell the story of the African AI and data science potential. I'm your host for this episode, Steven Oladili. In this episode, we have a conversation with Lynn Langett, one of the world's foremost technical educators in cloud and data technologies. You will learn a lot on our career journey as a mom raising a kid while transitioning to a career in software engineering and the lessons learned from the experiences. Lessons from her years spent in Africa volunteering on technical projects and giving talks in South Africa our frameworks for delivering our world-class technical content, and the next wave of cloud technologies you should be aware of as an African data scientist, and so many other talking points cloud and data related. We are sure you will learn a lot from this episode. Hey, but before we delve into the episode, we'd love to ask for a favor. If you're listening to this in October 2020, there are currently protests going on across Nigeria. It concerns us as you know, protocol of AI and even more so as African data scientists living in Nigeria. A special unit of the police forces over the years endangered, murdered and violently taken away the civil rights of young Nigerians because they think they are criminals. This is the terrible situation for us as technologists because the majority of us have been victims of these inhuman acts by this special anti-rubbery squad, SAS, set out to protect the people but instead are brutally endangering the lives of young people across Nigeria. We want you to help by lending your voices on social media, make it trend, understand what's going on currently and share it to the world. We'll leave links in the show notes so you can learn more. Thank you and without further ado, let's dive right into today's episode. Hello, Lynn. Welcome to our show. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm very fine. Thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Once again, we are extremely delighted to have you on board. Now, I, I think it would be quite a cliche for me to ask you to introduce yourself as you're one of the uh, foremost educators in, on cloud and data technologies. Well, can you tell us what we don't know about you that, of course, you'd love to share and, of course, what you're currently working on right now?
1: Yeah, sure. So I run my own company. And okay. I work on a contract by contract basis with virtual teams worldwide. And okay. I I switch between building uh, cloud solutions for customers um, mm-hmm. yeah. and between uh, creating educational material. And the educational material is on cloud and data. So those are the two areas I work in, building and educating.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, there are there things you think we should know about you? And of course, you're, you're like I said, you're one of the foremost educators in cloud and data technology um what else are you working on are, are there things you're working on well,
1: well well thank you that's very kind of mm-hmm. you to say um i have been uh had been um ha- have I, currently i'm working on actually the, the thing that i'm working on at this point is i am an author for linkedin learning lynda.com mm-hmm. yeah um, and i have a, a total they're not all active anymore but 30 courses um in cloud and data so i have a lot of, a lot of courses out there and cloud you know uh, moves, you know, these yeah. vendors have new services mm-hmm. coming out. And so I am currently working on updating uh, some of my courses on the Google Cloud Platform. So okay. I have Google Cloud Platform Essentials, Google Cloud Platform for Enterprise, and probably the most interesting for your audience is Google Cloud Platform Machine Learning. So I have three courses. And because the cloud changes so frequently, I update this every year to two years. Um, so in addition to that, in terms of building uh, I had been um, up until COVID you know, devastated the U S working with um, research organizations that were doing um, research on uh, genomics for personalized cancer drugs. Um, and, and my main client, which is in Boston in the United States, the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard, when COVID um, got to the U S they converted their cancer research to COVID test labs. And so um, they are, uh, they're you know, every single lab that they have, and they have 5,000, um, they call them Brodies, is doing um, COVID testing right now. So although uh, I, I had a, a, like a really small amount of input, they built their pipeline on GCP. Um, it was kind of ironic. I actually had, and it wasn't confirmed because I couldn't get a test, but I actually had COVID in March. It was a weird situation <laughs> um, because I, I had COVID couldn't get a test, and the road was converting. Um, and so since they've done this conversion, um, uh, I haven't really been engaging with the cancer stuff. So I've kind of switched my consulting over to the learning side um, to produce this learning content. So I kind of switched back and forth between, you know, building, building these high-scale pipelines or working with teams to build them on the cloud um, that include machine learning uh, or creating coursework.
0: Well, that, It's really awesome. I'm really sorry to hear that um, you, you had COVID at some point in March. Um, I'm glad you're here now, and you that you're fully recovered, and and all of those things. Lynn, I think your courses brought me fully into professional practitioner when it comes to practicing. Sorry, when it comes to cloud and data technologies. And I'm really, really grateful. And I'm sure it's the same thing with uh, uh, most of our listeners out there who are listening to the show today. Thank you so much once again. So, but ha- what was your career journey been like? And you know, are there lessons you'd love to share to our listeners that have perhaps helped you, you know, shape your journey? You know, through this time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um I I, I hope so. I mean, I'll share I very unconventional. Um I didn't study programming or math or anything like that. I actually studied linguistics and foreign languages. And I had a career for about 10 years as a business person. Um and then one of the businesses I worked on uh was software. And I'm I'm you know, Mm middle-aged. And so I don't know if you even know about this or heard about it, but software used to come on these things called disks and used to buy a box with disks in it. This is really old. So anyway, so uh, my business, uh, the last business, uh, we worked on uh, retail stores that sold, you know, software in boxes. And I didn't know anything about software. And so I wanted to learn about what we were selling. And so I, you know, started going to classes at night to learn. And I found myself fascinated. And then I made a career switch into, I started as a trainer, which is really basic, like teaching you know, how to use an operating system and how to use Word and PowerPoint and all that. And I found I really, really enjoyed it. And so then I really did a switch. And it was, it was um, an interesting time in my life because it was when I had my child, who's now 21. Mm-hmm. So it was 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, and I, I had um, a, a, you know, not a lot of time because I was a single mom at that point. Okay. And so I said, what is the area in software where you earn the most money? And people said, programming. And I said, okay, well, let me do that. And so my mom was helping me to care for my child. And I said, mom, I, I want to learn programming so that I can make you know, good income for my, for my daughter. Okay. And so um, I basically learned, taught myself programming. So the, So the lesson for people is, if you're interested and you enjoy this type of career, you don't, if you have the means and you have the situation to have a university degree, that's fantastic. And I encourage people who have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I am an example of somebody who, with support from my family, taught myself. And, um, you know, I just keep learning. That's really the lesson. To this day, I spend 20 to 25% of my time where I don't get paid, non-billed, where I'm learning because the industry moves very quickly. So, of course, when, I, when I'm getting billed, I have to charge a higher rate. <laughs> so, that's <laughs> yeah. the trick, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to charge more mm-hmm. so that you can, you can study, but, but constantly studying too because... Especially with machine learning and cloud, mm-hmm. I mean, things are changing so fast that if I didn't do that, you know, even three, four years ago, things that I knew aren't, you know, the best solutions anymore because the cloud vendors keep making more solutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I must agree with you. The, the technology landscape is ever-changing and, you know, we have to just keep learning. And you're on every term of that, of course, because I, I still wonder how you switch between the roles of being a CEO. A learner, a teacher, it's, it's really ridiculous, but I believe we'll, we'll, learn so much along the way as we go along in this podcast. Now, uh, why did you decide to work on cloud data science? And of course, you mentioned working on, um, COVID research. You were working on cancer research before with the university and now you think of it. And I know for sure that your, your research more recently is focused on bioinformatics. You know, why did you decide to work on cloud data science and bioinformatics as opposed to, you know, other areas and technology?
1: yeah well, it was a natural evolution, so kind of in the okay. first in the first switch when I went over into you know programming basically uh part of programming was making applications and this was you know fifteen years ago and so um at that time, I was working as a microsoft certified trainer and i'm I'm pretty good at taking tests you know some people struggle, but i I was always that student that got good marks, and so i I just am pretty good at taking tests so uh, in the time when I switched over, I was able to pass a lot of certification tests. Um, and you had to, to train a class, you had to be certified. And so I just did the whole Microsoft certification basically in one year. Again, it was kind of like going to the university. You know, I said to my family, you know, I'm going to switch careers and I, you know, I need your help. And so, you know, I really focused. You know, I stopped watching television. I didn't go to movies. I just studied all the time so I could make this career switch. And as part of that, the elective that you could pick was a number of different services. And at that time, Um, I had a boss who uh, said, you know, you ought to look at databases. You might like that. And, you know, I had always been that power user of Excel, the person who really loved data, who was writing Excel macros and all that. And so I said, okay. And so I gave it a try and I loved it. I loved it. In fact, I, to this day, say that my first programming language was SQL rather than, you know, uh, Java or something, because I, I really loved it. And I taught all the SQL classes. And it was really, really loving data. And my students would come to my classes and they would bring me data problems. And I really didn't even have time to do consulting because I was, you know, mom and everything. And so I was like this kind of reverse consultant. I would say to people, Well, I only have one hour or two hours. So what is your what is your most compelling problem? Like most consultants, you know, they want to like stretch it out and make a lot of money. But I was, it was like very ironic because I would do their most important thing in an hour if I could or two. And then, of okay. course, they, they, they would really want me to be a uh, consultant more. I mean, it was this weird situation because I was super effective, right? You know, you talk about, you know, some of these modern techniques like uh, lean startup where you do the minimum viable. Well, I was doing that because I didn't have any time. <laughs> 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 I was a mom, right? I had to get yeah. with my daughter. So anyway, so, so uh, uh, this uh, work as a, a trainer I started going to uh, shows, and I met Microsoft people, and I started being a contractor at shows, and so I got known by Microsoft, and then I got a job offer from Microsoft. So I worked at Microsoft for a while and learned quite a bit about um, the education part, because my job was developer relations, and I learned about present- presenting and creating content. But after a certain period, I, I'm an independent person. Like you said, I, I work on a lot of different things, and so I, yes. I knew I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So at that time, that was 2011. Um, there were some really interesting things happening in data at that time and cloud. Amazon had just, you know, come out, they had, you know, like just EC2 and S3, (laughs) but people were using EC2 and I was using EC2. So I saw that was happening. And then on the data side, Hadoop was a thing, you know, uh, Google open source, the Hadoop binaries, and suddenly you could analyze just huge amounts of data. And I lived in California at the time. So there were a lot of, you know, ad techs and, you know, Mm -hmm. places. So so anyway, so I I sort of switched from, you know, training Microsoft technologies. I love Microsoft. I launched my consultancy. I was training Hadoop and NoSQL. And I uh, really just launched into the Amazon cloud because that was the only viable cloud at that time. I mean, Azure took a while to become viable and so did Google Cloud. So Amazon just kind of had the market to themselves. And because I was in California, that's kind of where everything started. And so, okay. 2011, 2012, 13, I made my leap over into big data and cloud. Machine learning was a little bit later. Um, I, I still think that my skill level isn't, you know, where I want it to be in machine learning. Okay. Um, but, but again, I, my customers are came to me, and everything I do is customer driven, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, yeah. how, do we use TensorFlow? Do we use, you know, some simpler algorithm from scikit-learn? What do we do, right? And so I. Okay. Started working on this, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago, and had to teach myself everything. Which again, this is sort of my pattern. So then, when I once I teach myself something, I try to leave, you know, a trail for people that are trying to learn as well. So it was it was not a straight path. And I mean, to this day, even though machine learning has a place, um, although I do 100% of my work on cloud, and I have for I don't know five years or so, I don't. Machine learning isn't always part of the solutions. Like sometimes you can just use a relational database and do SQL
0: queries, and I'll get you the answers
1: you need.
0: Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. okay. So I,
1: I'm sorry that was a long answer. So. <laughs> oh, oh no,
0: no, no that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, Lean, you you've been to Africa, you know, as far as I know, a lot of times, according to your profile, and you've also been to um, Cape Town, severally, um, as well as Durban in South Africa. In you know, way you spoke at the Microsoft Build. Conference, which was TechEd back then. And uh, specifically, you've also been to Zambia, Lusaka Zambia, where you volunteered with your technical skills for a nonprofit for you know, five years annually. You know, what was your time in Africa like? You know, can you, you know, share that experience with us?
1: Yeah, it was life-changing. Um, okay. You know, mo- most, most Americans, or many Americans, n- mm-hmm. never get anywhere in the African continent. And, you know, we, we are ignorant. You know, we just see what we see on TV. I mean, first of all, I don't have to tell you, Flying from London to Joburg takes forever <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. the African continent is so big. Um, and just yeah. that alone. I mean, but, uh, you know, and the the variety, the richness and the variety between the different countries. Again, mm-hmm. I think just a lot of people who have never been to the African continent don't understand, uh, don't have a, a, any understanding of the differences, which is just ignorant, really. But I mean, as you well know, uh, you know, just like in the United States, if you go to a different yeah. state, it's like a different culture, right? It's the mm-hmm. same way, yeah. right? Um, so, so um, you know, and then just like, I, I spent the most time with people in Lusaka. And so I, you know, if there's any people from Africa that I've gotten to know, and then I call friends, it's, it's people from Lusaka. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I just, uh, I have good friends to, to this day, and I haven't been back to Lusaka in years. So there is this, this warmth and this aspect of community that, um, -hmm. in, in, uh, Zambia that really was made a life-changing impression on me.
0: Oh, that's, um, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I think it's one thing we talk about often, the external perspective of people when they look at Africa from the outside world and, you know, until they get closer to the continents, they understand the richness and diversity and And the uniqueness in the African people. We are so delighted. Uh, You got to experience that yourself, Lynn. Now, um, during your workshop with us a few uh, weeks back, because we had a workshop with you, uh, listeners, you can check that on our YouTube channel. We also leave the links in the show notes for it to reference later. You know, your eyes lit up when you said you have been to Africa, you know, but not Nigeria specifically, of course. And you said you'd love to visit soon. I would be ecstatic to have you, by the way. You know, what is it that excites you about Africa and how much promise do you see in Africa in terms of technological growth and advancements? Because I believe you volunteered with um, Smart Care and electronic medical record system built by um, the Ministry of Health of Zambia, in the US CDC and, you know, other non-profit organizations worldwide. And yes, you've also been to South Africa several times in Durban. And um, I think one of your major contributions to Africa as well was your TKP resource that's your teaching kids programming resource where um a developer who attended one of your sessions in Dublin used it with, uh, with a group of students in Joburg now what's that promise you see in africa when it comes to technological growth and advancement that you'd love to share to all the us?
1: well my experience you know is that the the countries the areas that i visited the the populations there are younger than the populations in the united states and um, and so you know when you have young people you have educational not that old people can't learn because i'm still mm-hmm. learning okay but you know, you have educational opportunities. I mean, you know, I see just this potential for um, participation in the data economy that is, um, frankly, you know, supported by efforts like your effort with your school. Um, you know, democratization of education is, is I think, key to, to, to human progress. And I've said this for a long time, but, you know, my visits to the African continent and to other places in the world just really underscore that we are one tech world. Um, and You know, irregardless of your politics or whatever, that that is the reality. We are one tech world. And as, uh, as the human race, if we will embrace that, we will have more progress and, um, we need progress. So, so, you know, I mean, some things that have just been interesting in my career is, um, you know, the European and and, uh, American centric view of tech that, um, I find to be limiting in everything from the, Selection of training data for machine learning algorithms. It's mm-hmm. too, it's too American and European centric to the uh, creation of content. Um, you know, there isn't, for example, because I have a degree in linguistics and because I speak okay. some foreign languages, um, this idea of localization. Um, and yes, the, the principal tech language is English. Okay. But any type of localization, uh, is a more welcoming Factor for people new to tech, even something as simple as providing examples. Let's say for machine learning, that's based on data that is local. Like that seems to be some you know big new idea, which I can't really understand that because well, like okay, when I go to present in different countries, when I'm going to have photographs in my presentation, I try to like first of all enjoy where I am, so go out of the hotel, and I try to have photographs of things that locally I, I think are you know interesting or compelling. And people yeah. have remarked on that, that most um, you know, people that are coming in don't bother to do that. They just don't. They don't, they don't have any sense of where they are. And they just think, you know, the tech comes from you know, America or wherever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're going to just bring the tech to you. And the other thing I also try to do is I try to go to the co-working spaces in, in the countries that I visit to see what is going on with the startup communities there and to see what tech is being created in the countries. And it's so fascinating to me to see how the tech is being applied to the local problems. And again, I'd love to talk about that. I love to learn from that mm-hmm. when I'm in the countries. This whole idea of this one tech world, I think is something that is, um, we need to do better.
0: Basically. Okay. Absolutely agree with you. Um, making that localization, um, uh, worthwhile. And especially for Africans, because we are historically underrepresented, and having to to help control those factors, uh, which are principally those made by the, the Americans and the Europeans. Thank you so much for for such insight, Lynn. Now, um we I think we're moving to the point where we're talking about your career as an educator, as and as well as an entrepreneur. You know, what have you learned as a technical educator? Because you said, of course, you're a contract staff with uh, LinkedIn Learning as a um, technical educator. Uh, what have you learned as a technical educator that you think other educators should know? You know do you have anything that you'd love to share on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the couple of things. First of all, okay. in the tech community, um, there are still a lot of people who think that code is the product. And yeah, um, yeah code is part of the product, but um, code needs to be surrounded by... Um, tools, uh, samples. Um, and yeah. most, most importantly, I call it the ladder to learning. And I'll give an example from bioinformatics. So bioinformatics pipelines, you know, they're processing the genome. And so they have, um, the, the, uh, some of these research places like the Broad are creating library, software libraries and cloud templates and tools so that the research can be replicated, which is, you know, really important so that we can get some of these new drugs to market faster because the way you know medicine works is you publish your study and then somebody has to replicate your results, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so they're they're very interested in making their tools usable outside of their researchers, so other researchers can replicate and can you know improve human health. Well, you know something I've I've seen not only in the broad but in bioinformatics in general is because the data is so huge and the computation is so complex, often involving machine learning, so it's probabilistic. There are yes. hello world is just not what I'm used to. I mean, I had one customer who I said, okay, how do you get started with this? And they said, well, it takes five hours. And I said, what? Are, are you kidding me? A hello world should take five minutes. And so one of the, one of the areas that I've been really looking at, and, and this is not only in genomics, this was in ad tech in California too. And this, so this is very uh, associated to machine learning because you have these massive, massive data sets. And if you have some sort of algorithm you want somebody else to try out, part of teaching is to create this ladder of learning. And so I've been working on this quite a lot in these domains. So in other words, you don't just go, okay, here's how this works. Here's a toy example. And then here's a hello world that takes five hours. Because what if you do it wrong and you have to wait five hours for the next time? You know what I mean? Um, So you not only need the five-minute example, you need the 10-minute example, and the 15-minute example and the one-hour example. That's the ladder of learning. So very, very specifically in machine learning, that means you need to have data sets. You need to have test data sets. You need to take the time to make them that are stratified. Sometimes they have to be um, made anonymous if it's health data. So you have to go through that. So, So that's been a big challenge in genomics because... You know, you know, we're trying to race to find these medicines and now faster for COVID. And so there's no time to do this. So what what is the learning here is that in a lot of technical domains, particularly machine learning, there's need for more data people because, I mean, if somebody can't reproduce your research, it doesn't matter. Like you might as well have not done it. And if they can't use your tool, then they're not going to reproduce your research. So this is kind of like the problem space from a learning point I'm working on right now. I mean, I'll make another okay. very conc- concrete example. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but GitHub has a new beta feature called Codespaces. And what it is, it's if you click your GitHub repo, it makes an online version of VS Code. So you don't have to install anything. And so the idea is, and it puts your GitHub files from that repo into that, it's a Docker container basically. So the idea is, if you want to you know, contribute to a code repo, you don't have to set anything up because this Docker container should have been pre-configured by the person who made the repo. Because again, that's yeah. part, of, part of the problem, right? When you're trying to learn something, you have to download all the libraries, you have to configure all... It takes forever if you even figure it out, right? So yeah. one of the other trends in learning is online editors and environments that are configured. So you can just click and start coding.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think we'll link to um, the... The code spaces, so our listeners can get to know of that, the GitHub, the beta version of the code spaces. Now, Lynn, you're a world-class educator, I must say, and, um, as well as, a, of course, a technical educator at that. Now, do you have any frameworks for delivering technical content? You know, you know, how you prepare your courses in such a way that they are so accessible to learners. Like I said, I benefit so much from your courses. Are there frameworks you used to deliver such, um, amazing Yeah. Lessons? Um,
1: again, thanks for your kind words. I appreciate it. Um, I, GitHub is one of them. So one okay. of the things that I, that I started doing, because again, I'm really all about accessibility. And of course, to use LinkedIn, you have to pay, you have to have a subscription. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I realized, number one, not everybody can afford to pay. And number two, it's not maybe available everywhere. So one of the things that I started doing about two years ago is I put all the course files for all my courses on GitHub. And yes, I that's basically, I'm not getting paid for that. So that is my contribution to greater education. Not everybody can afford to do that. But one of the positive benefits of that, of course, is it gets more people to look at my courses who end up maybe buying subscriptions. So it's a kind of marketing in a way. It's kind of a, I call it, I call it do good, be good, get good. (laughs) Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm just optimistic, right? But so so I use, I use GitHub Um, and that way I can keep the, the coursework fresh too, because um, if my files were locked away in some proprietary system that I had to manually update versus GitHub that you can just push a new change, it just keeps everything fresher. So that I think that has been something I've, I've really tried to do. The other thing that I'm kind of in the middle of is I think people, especially now, especially in America during the pandemic, are really bored of PowerPoint. And so I'm trying these different approaches and I'm just trying to try them out. The one that has been kind of interesting is using mind maps for presentations. So okay. And so these are presentations that have a lot of demos. So I don't know if you've ever had this, but you probably have with machine learning because it's complex by nature, where you're watching somebody do a demo and after about the seventh step or maybe the 10th step or the 15th step, you can't keep it all in your head. And that's not that's normal, actually. A typical person can only keep three to five things. So what you can do with a mind map is you can create an, uh, an aggregation layer. So you can say, okay, these three steps are the data prep. These three steps are the data clean. These three steps are the whatever. And as you're, as you're going through the demo, you can use this mind map as a reference point. And this is actually how I think. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of just trying it out. I, I had some good responses to it, um, but I'm trying to get beyond PowerPoint. I don't know. What do you think? Are you, are you sick of PowerPoint?
0: <laughs> quite, quite frankly, I actually do use mind maps to learn Yeah, uh, because um, I'm quite frankly used to the hand drawn mind maps. So that's, uh, I use that through my college days, that was um from my third year to my final year in my college days, using mind maps in the uh, classroom to help me really understand concepts. And I use them, um, uh, I think the mind mapper and the wind, I uh, think that's the, one of the office tools, I guess. Or, um, one of the Windows tools, and it's been so good so far. I'm really sick of PowerPoints, to be very frank mm-hmm. with you, because <laughs> uh, like, like you said, it's, uh, it, it takes a, it's, it's just a few things you can really put in your head. And, you know, most times people just try to, you know, cram out a lot of things on PowerPoints, but mind maps are like the way we think as humans, I believe, you know, conceptual thinking and so forth. So yeah, I, absolutely. I think this works for me, and I believe it will also do so for other learners as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, one other thing I guess I should mention, because I've been working on it a lot last year, and I'm still working on it, is I am really fanatical about drawing architecture on one page. So I use Lucidcharts, um, but I did a series of talks last year on visualizing cloud systems, and I've actually started, I haven't finished it, but I've started working on a book um, because I wanted to read a book about visualizing cloud systems, like what were the patterns, and I couldn't find one. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I actually started, about, I don't know, maybe 18 months ago. And I look at all these different cloud visualization tools. There's a lot of them like CloudCraft.io and um, uh, there's some that now do more of the monitoring like Thundra. Um, anyway, if people are interested, I can give you some links because I've been doing okay. work in that area. Because again, it's, you know, what made me think of it is when you said mind maps is how we think. I also mm-hmm. think that pictures is how we think because p- yeah. pictures come before words. And I'm a big mm-hmm. proponent of if you can't draw a system on one page and get everybody to agree, then you're not going to be efficient in building because people don't know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll, we'll get the links from you and put them in show notes for our listeners to explore more on on this, as well as I know, some you know, scientific groups about um thinking and mind maps as well. Thank you so much, Lynn, for a such broad and insightful response to that question. Okay, th- this question goes to, your activities, both as a CEO, as a consultant, as well as an author. You know, how do you manage your time between learning, running your company, consulting, and authoring technical courses? Uh,
1: you know, I'm I have a lot of curiosity, which is my strength mm-hmm. and also yeah. my weakness. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. um, you know, I uh, I try to balance. I, I do. I use. I use. I kind of implement what I just said. So, I um, I color code my calendar. And I color code it okay. by, it just sounds very silly, but it works. Green is billable time. Light green is potentially billable. So if I don't have enough okay. green, I got to do less studying and more working. <laughs> and um, if I'm trying to learn a topic, I'll color code my calendar. Um, you know, like for example, right now I'm trying to learn how to build custom code spaces for a client. Mm-hmm. And so, and I usually time block things no longer than two hours. Um, I don't think that. Okay. I, well, maybe people can, but I can't concentrate and work really focused on a technical topic. Usually, it's 25 minutes. I do Pomodoro's: 25 minutes on, five minutes off. Because, yeah. uh, especially as I age, um, I'm 59, so I am not young. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, yes. I, um, you know, your body tells you you can't sit in a chair for two hours, or you can't stare; you'll get eye strain. Um, you know, when you're 20, you can do that, but maybe some people can do it. When they're 59, but I can't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, okay. I think that's a really good way. Time management, perhaps that's uh, perhaps a summary for that, having to manage the time properly in between um, these key areas of your expertise as well. Now, Lynn, I think we, we're about to go into a section where we're going to be talking about cloud and data technologies, you know, for listeners out there who we'll, uh, are very keen on that particularly. Now, I think it's perhaps clear why data scientists and Uh, machine learning engineers should consider adopting cloud technologies to their workflow. Of course, we had a workshop with you and you made all of those very clear. uh, We linked to the workshop in our show notes once again. Do you think there are any other not so obvious reasons why myself as a data scientist should consider adopting cloud technologies to my workflow? Uh,
1: Well, to me, it's not a choice. Um, With the the volumes of data that Mm -hmm. are uh, needed, not only available, but that are needed for uh, analysis. I I don't think that you can be a a viable data scientist without at least partially using cloud. Now, again, Mm -hmm. because of my perspective traveling and having friends worldwide, I I do realize that there are areas of the world that do not have the same availability of internet bandwidth and cloud Mm -hmm. services. And so it's not probably going to be always the case that you do 100% of the work on the cloud. But I really do think that I represent the future, whether it's good or bad um, in terms of cloud, I haven't done zero work on premise for, I don't, five, five years, six years. I mean, I do everything in the cloud. Um, and I, I do think that's the way it's going to go. It's just because of the economics. You know, when okay. you have fewer companies that are providing that infrastructure, they can do it more cheaply and nobody can really compete with them. Do you know? Um, now, now I think there's some technical challenges in some areas, but again, I don't, no, I only know from like what I read casually. Casually, like uh, Elon Musk wants to put up a bunch of satellites to increase, you know, internet coverage everywhere. Mm. I mean, you might be actually really surprised. In the state, in the United States that I live in, in Minnesota, we actually have areas here that do not have appropriate internet coverage, and this has been really, really highlighted with the COVID pandemic because, um, you know, when we have outbreaks, school has just started mm. here, and uh, there are rural areas where students will not be able to attend school. And so it's, it's been, COVID has just done so many, it's accelerated so much of the problems, I guess. And so one of the problems we have might be surprising to your listeners, even in America, is we have areas, rural areas that do not have uh, good enough internet coverage uh, to, to work all in the cloud. So, so anyway, so Why you should work in the cloud is if it is available, number one, and then it allows for um, you to use larger amounts of data, which as a general rule in machine learning is preferable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I must agree with you on those points you've made, because like uh, most areas in Africa under this um, influence of having poor internet connection and you know, cloud might not be like a really viable option, but like you said, if it's available, um, please use a data scientist, African data scientist. Thank you so much for that insight. Celine. Now, how, how should a a data scientists approach learning and using cloud technologies, especially when they're on the budget. Like, like you know, we rightfully discussed uh, um, just uh, recently uh, this previous question. We talked about internet connection being a problem and not having stable internet. But generally, if these data scientists are on the budget, how do you think they should approach learning and using cloud technologies?
1: Well, again, you know, given those constraints, um, and I my knowledge here is a bit outdated because you know it was I don't know almost ten years now since I've been to Zambia and you know, infrastructure yeah. has improved since then. But, um, you know, I know at that time we had a uh, satellite at the office and I don't know if that's still how the infrastructure works in some of the offices. So generally we had, you know, fairly decent internet at the office. Um, now at the, at the hotels that we stayed at, it was kind of yes or no. And then anything other than that, like anybody's private homes, no, we didn't really have it or like they didn't really have it in retail stores or cafes or anything like that. So, so again... Use it where you can. Um, so if you have, if it's, if, it, if that's the case uh, where you are, where commercial, uh, buildings would have a uh, better quality internet, then you, you might have to go to the commercial building and do your work from there as much as possible. Um, uh, you know, be practical given the situation. Um, but, but the bigger point is try to get moved towards the cloud because the industry is, is in the cloud globally. So to be relevant globally, Mm. Try to move towards the cloud if it's possible.
0: Oh, okay, absolutely. Um, thanks for um, for that insight, Lynn. I think this question might come down to preference for uh, perhaps, you know, you've worked with uh, Microsoft Azure, you've worked with Google Cloud Platform and AWS and, you know, perhaps Cloud Air. Uh, which of the cloud vendors would you advise a startup or business from a developing country, let's say countries in Africa, to adopt in terms of cost and efficiency? Do you have anyone that you think has um, stood out when it comes to that.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I would always do, you know, being the curious person that I am, when I would travel, um, is <laughs> I'm kind of a nerd. So I would get to the country, and after I would, you know, have a little rest or something. Um, then yeah. one of the first things I would do is I would try to create a virtual machine on all three vendors' clouds in that country, because again, okay. I was often there to talk about cloud. And you know, to my earlier uh, answer about. Being locally relevant, I, I mm-hmm. always found it painful when people would come from America or Europe and come into a country that wasn't those countries, and and present as if they were presenting at home, and only to find out from the audience that they couldn't, the audience couldn't even have access to that particular, particular vendor. You know, it was super slow or something. Yeah. So, yeah. so first of all, just practical. I call it like layer one of cloud. Like, how long does it take to make a VM? And pick the vendor that's fastest. you know what i mean i mean if they're if they're all fast then that's a different story then pick the one that's cheapest right um so i'll make i'll make an example from australia so um australia you know notoriously had just horrible bandwidth and i had a client in australia in 2015 to 2017 at the time i was there google cloud had no data centers in australia um and so i i did my test and this was so surprising Google had no data centers in Australia, but their VM was the fastest. And do you know why? It was in Singapore because they had the undersea cable already laid. So oh, even, okay. even though they didn't have the data center, they had the cable. And so, okay. um, again, I'm sort of, you know, I'm an engineer, right? And so you have to like mm-hmm. test and yeah. see what works. So figure out which, one, which ones are available. Which one is the fastest by just simply making a VM. And then if you have choice, then look at the cost in the country. Because obviously, when you're prototyping, you want to want to save money. Now, all these vendors have free tiers. So you want to always use the free tier. And then they also, because I know a lot of your audiences are university students, a lot of them have have university programs. And I find a lot okay. of students don't know about this, where you can get hundreds of dollars of cloud services for cheap or free because if you use your university email. So, you know, okay, use all your resources. Don't just you know, hop on and start paying the retail price. Because a lot of times you can get it for, you know, next to nothing, you know, to learn.
0: Okay. Um, I I think Lynn, you perhaps share a link to, you know, some of these investing programs to me so that we can link them in show notes. That'd be fine. Sure.
1: sure. And then I will say also that you have to check by country because sometimes Mm, these university programs are global. Sometimes they're for Mm -hmm. a country. Sometimes they're for a continent. Um, You sometimes have to dig a little bit, but... Almost all university students can get almost free cloud, but it's just the time to find out what is the program. Do you know what I
0: mean? Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you so much um, for for that insight, Lee. Now I think we are we are in the in the season of certifications and cloud certifications. You have the Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure, AWS, and so on. You know, as a cloud educator, you know what are your best tips and practices for our listeners praying for cloud certification programs given that you've passed most majority of the certification programs out there
1: yeah so first of all i would say because people always ask me is it worth it should i do certification and um i think it's definitely worth it if you do not have the university degree in data science or cs because you know when people are going to hire you if they see either a the degree or b the certification or c both they they have you know a validation of your skill so i think that's that's a case where it's certainly worth it Um, Again, it's very different regionally. And I'll make an example from the U.S. because I I don't know for your area. The U.S. and the West Coast, um, Amazon's dominant. They are just super dominant um, generally. Google is second in terms of like um, mobile startups and gaming and stuff like that. So by vertical. In the center of the U.S. where I live now, Azure is the second player. So Amazon, well, Azure might even be first in the city I live in. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, because uh, it's very okay. corp- very corporate here. So you have um, health centers and you have manufacturing. So it's very sort of like traditional here. And so people like the fact that if they have Microsoft on premise, they can use Azure in their easier learning path because you have similar right. tools, right? Um, and they have a lot of um, service level agreements and. Um, you know, uh, uptime guarantees. I mean, the other vendors do too, but it's just corporate America, small and middle businesses tends to like Azure if they're on Microsoft. So even within the US, it's different. So if like if you wanted to get a job in Minneapolis, if you had Azure certification, you'd probably be more employable, maybe Amazon. Um, On the West Coast, Google certification is really hot because there's not enough people that have it. Do you know?
0: Okay. Oh, 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 awesome. Um, like, like, once again, like you said, so understand what's hot in your area, then understand if it's worth it, and you know, look at the circumstances around, um, around this current situation. Now, um, for you, for you, Lynn, what's the, what's the next big wave in cloud and data technologies that you think people should be aware of? That's no, not really obvious.
1: Um, it's that machine learning will be on every solution. So it's really good for your listeners. <laughs> um, Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the, um, it's the democratization of machine learning. And the the people who are leading that are Google because Google Mm, has the most experience with applied machine learning from, you know, Google and Gmail and selling ads and everything else. And so, um, uh, really everything around TensorFlow is just excellent. Um, it's been so, it's been so interesting to follow TensorFlow because TensorFlow is really technically difficult to understand. I mean, I personally, I had to learn linear algebra at like 50 because I never had it mm. in school because it's, it's um, applied distributed linear algebra. And um, okay. so what when TensorFlow first came out, I used to call it like the, the C language or the C++ of machine learning. It was super powerful, but super, super hard to use. And when it first came out, you know, I'd be asking people, okay, do you have any TensorFlow in production? And they'd be like, well, no, we tried, but we can. And we went back to like, you know, something from scikit learn and that was, you know, because again, it goes back to what I said earlier about being a teacher. Working code is not a product, right? So, mm-hmm. so even though yeah. the TensorFlow library is really powerful, no one could use it in the beginning. So Google has made this all-in effort and really kind of unusual for them because they're so engineer-heavy. They tend to kind of not do a good job with tools and samples. But TensorFlow is an exception. And if you go to the TensorFlow website and you look at, The tutorials and the examples, which you can run, by the way, if you have internet access via co-laboratory, the Jupyter notebooks, you can just click and run them, which is fantastic. You don't have to, you know, install GPU drivers and get get a machine with GPUs, which who can afford that, right? (laughs) Um, Also, the tools that Google is making around fairness in machine learning, and I mentioned this in my presentation that I did to you guys. Um, the what if tool and the visual tools that allow you to look at bias in the training data, they are really setting the standard. Now, again, to be fair, Microsoft is doing some work in this area and Microsoft has some tools as well. It's just, I really think that Google is on the cutting edge here. And so, you know, that's where I'm focusing my studying and learning um, and specifically TensorFlow and all the ecosystem around TensorFlow.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much, Lynn for, for that insight there. I think we're going to be sh- perhaps sharing the links to some of the um, Google Cloud works on machine learning so our, our listeners can check them out. Now, I think we're getting to the point where we would love to hear your, your final thoughts on some couple of things. You know, what What's the most exciting thing you're currently working on now that you'd love to share to our listeners?
1: Uh, well, like I said in the beginning, I'm updating my Google cloud classes and given what I just, what I just said about, you know, machine learning on the cloud is the future and Google is leading the way. Um, I call my courses, the missing, um, Google cloud courses, because, Mm -hmm. you know, again, to what I've been saying through the podcast in this whole thing about creating this learning ladder, a, a flaw that I've seen in Google cloud over the years is they haven't had this ladder. They, you know, they start with a simple example and then they go right into the, Super complex, and I've felt it myself. I mean, I make a lot of my content so I can learn, and then I just put it out there, and people tell me, "Oh, that was helpful for me." <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. so, so, I'm hoping again. I my my dream is to you know democratize machine learning, how to do machine learning, right? And so um, yeah. via the cloud. And so I think that that is you know that's a really compelling project. The other thing that I'm really trying to add value to is any of the efforts I see around the world in terms of um, finding um, vaccines or mitigations for COVID. Um, so, okay. so I'm trying to amplify the work of the Broad um, through my social media. I'm trying to test their solutions. Um, and there are other, like I worked with um, Commonwealth for Scientific and Industrial Research Organization or CSIRO in Sydney, Australia. They're doing some work. I mean, really every major bioinformatics group in the world is working on this. Um, so whenever I see any excellence, I try to test it, you know, can, can it be used? I provide feedback to people um, that are working on it. I try to amplify it to the bioinformatics community, um, you know, because we're all racing to reduce, okay. reduce the suffering. And again, not to, not to be uh, complaining, but I, I had a pretty tough round with COVID. So I actually know what I'm talking about here. It's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty tough thing. And, Um, if there's something that I can do to help these researchers using my cloud knowledge, I'm going to do it.
0: Lynn, it's so, it's so nice of you. And it's such a lovely gesture um, that you're putting out there. And uh, where can people reach out to you if they perhaps want to contact you?
1: Sure. 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 Twitter is a great place. Another, Another thing that I'll tell people is I started, a new channel, um, not really channel, but a way to get out information. I started what I call micro-blogging on dev, okay. dev.2. And what I'm doing okay. is they're like three-minute posts. Basically, it's kind of... And I'm focusing on my Codespaces stuff right now. But it's really a very short... You can just look and say, Oh, do this in Codespaces. Do this one thing. Do you know what I mean? And plus, there's a lot of really good content on dev.2 and not enough okay. machine learning. So one of the things that I would challenge the listeners... Because people think, oh, you know, if I'm going to make a talk or if I'm going to make a post, it's going to take forever. But Two um, is kind of interesting in that the most content is three to five minutes. It's super short. So just a tip, you know, any tip you might have. And so I'm, I'm going to put it out there to all your listeners. I would love to see some of them share their tips on Two.
0: Okay. Um, really awesome. So we're, I think we're going to link into your... Um, your micro blog in the description as well. So Lynn, it's been a wonderful conversation with you. We're absolutely delighted we had to have this, uh, this very insightful conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on our show once again. And, um, thank you so much listeners for the dialing in today. Uh, we appreciate you taking your time to listen until this minute. Thank you so much. Lynn, do you have any department thoughts or we can round up?
1: I would just tell everyone, keep learning. If I can do it, you can do it. And again, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
0: All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, listeners. You stay safe. Bye-bye.